0: Well, good morning. Uh, this, today I have the privilege of once again coming to you and uh, confessing my sin and asking for your forgiveness uh, concerning the, the meeting last week. Uh, as i said in in my email uh, to uh, everybody just uh, the the meeting did not go as i had intended uh and uh robert's rules of orders for those of you who know what those mean seemed to go out the window uh, in my haste and that's why we've uh, we've scheduled another members meeting on uh, sunday june 23rd uh and uh, at that time we'll, we'll be available for uh questions uh Uh, and just discussion on all that was presented at that uh, meeting. And I just would want to echo that that meeting is not just for members only, but anybody who wants to know what is going on uh, here at the church is invited uh, to attend that Sunday, uh, two weeks from now. Uh, per our bylaws we have to announce it uh this sunday and the coming sunday if we're going to have a members meeting so just want to make that clear to you all and that everybody is invited so bring your your questions and your uh cries of shock outrage and protest uh, anything to that effect uh and we will uh, be happy to answer any and all of your questions uh, at that meeting uh, but uh, if uh, you have your Bibles with me, please open up to uh, Psalms. Uh, over the, the course of uh, the summers, I like to, to take a break from uh, whatever kind of sequential uh, preaching I'm, I'm doing uh, because people kind of come in and out uh, and miss weeks here and there uh, for vacation. I like to do uh, summers through the Psalms uh, just to be able to, to have kind of some standalone messages. And the Psalms are always great. Uh, every time I read through the Psalms uh, in a different season of life, certain Psalms jump out to you uh, with, with new and profound meaning, uh, able to minister to us uh, when whatever season of life that we are in. Uh, and uh, as you're turning there to Psalm 8, you may have heard of a, a television series that aired back in 1980. It was on uh, PBS, and it was a 13-part television series entitled uh, Cosmos, uh, A Personal Voyage. Uh, the series was written by three scientists, Carl Sagan, Andrew and, and Steve Soder, uh, with Sagan also serving as the narrator for that series. And the series is one of the most widely watched television series of all time. Uh, it won two Emmy Awards uh, and then a Peabody Award. And uh, it presents a worldview built upon the foundation uh, of human reason and scientific achievement. Uh, it uh, indeed presents a worldview that many have begun to call scientism. Uh, and every single worldview uh, has to answer four basic questions. Uh, where do we come from? What went wrong? What's the solution? Uh, and then where are we headed? Uh, and in that program, it especially emphasizes the where have we come from and where are we Headed, it is presenting a a worldview. That worldview, known as scientism, and, and scientism doesn't just uh, believe in science. And really, science, the scientific method, is a way of doing research. Uh, but in scientism, uh, science is held up and seen and worshipped to be what will save humanity. all of man's problems science is the solution to uh is what is understood within that worldview of scientism and uh, scientism believes that the universe began uh with the big bang and sometime after that in some unknown event and process life began in the form of bacteria and humanity over the course of thousands of generations has evolved from that single-celled bacteria into what we are today and in that Worldview, you can say that human reason is its holy book, and that scientists are its priests, and that everyday people would go to scientists to understand what to believe and what to do. And that is this worldview of scientism. What's amazing is that if you were to go on to uh, to YouTube uh, and look up the series, there's, there's been a, a preface added to that, the first episode where Andrew, and one of the, the creators of the series, speaks and, and is talking about the significance of the series after Carl Sagan's death. And this is what she says. She says that the the series is a tribute to the now deceased Sagan. Even after 20 of the most eventful years in the history of science, Cosmos requires few revisions and indeed is rich in prophecy. Cosmos is both a history of the scientific enterprise and an attempt to convey the soaring spiritual high of its central revelation our oneness with the universe. You notice the the language that she uses is loaded with uh, religious significance. Uh, those aren't just neutral terms. She's speaking of her worldview and the worldview presented in the cosmos show as, in essence, a religion. It, ha- it has a revelation. It has a spiritual high. It has prophecy. The original series, the first episode, begins with Carl Sagan walking out along a cliff and and the camera zooms in on his position and you hear his voice narrating. And this is what he says. He says, The cosmos is all that is or was or ever will be. Our contemplations of the cosmos stir us. There is a tingling in the spine and a catch in the voice, a faint sensation as of a distant memory of falling from a great height. We know we are approaching the grandest of mysteries. And yet, in a little bit of irony, he spends 13 episodes explaining that grandest of mysteries. Uh, And he explains it in a way that he understands. So it's this great big mystery, but he understands it completely because of what science has taught him. And this worldview of scientism has been embraced by our culture with open arms and closed minds. They have embraced it to such a degree that this imaginary force of science is amazing and worthy of awe, reverence, and worship. So I would pose this question today. As we look at the heavens above, as we look at the stars, as we look at the galaxies, as we look at all that exists, what conclusion are we to come to? What are we supposed to think as we look at the vastness of the universe around us? And this morning, as we look at Psalm 8, we'll we'll see that there is another possible conclusion as we contemplate the cosmos. As we look at all that exists, yes, we will feel small and insignificant. That is the intended response uh, from the one who created the cosmos. We are supposed to feel small, but as we feel smaller, we also see the greatness of God. And we see his greatness, not just in what he has created, but in his character as the creator. There's one uh, pastor and commentator who wrote uh, a great commentary on the Psalms. He says this of Psalm 8. He says, this Psalm is an unsurpassed example of what a hymn should be. Celebrating as it does the glory and grace of God, rehearsing who he is and what he has done relating us and our world to him, all with a masterly economy of words and in a spirit of mingled joy and awe. And I would invite with you uh, invite you with me uh, to read Psalm 8, beginning with the, the title. It says, To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth! And crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field. The birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What we see here in Psalm 8 is David contemplating the cosmos and he thinks of the creator, the vastness of his creation, and then he marvels at God's love, concern, and his exaltation of humanity, even though we are but dust in the vastness of the universe. And as we see here in the 21st century, as we look heavenward, this psalm guides our thoughts and our hearts to a deeper contemplation, to a deeper worship of the God who has given us life and breath and everything. How many of you have recently looked up at the stars just on on an evening? You can see them pretty clear here in in the city. But if you go out further into the wilderness, you see see quite a few stars. When was the last time you, you contemplated those stars or even contemplated the character of the one who made those stars? That is what this psalm is intended to do, to provoke our imagination, to get us thinking about the universe around us. But what is there to think about and to contemplate as we look to the stars that come out each and every night? What are we supposed to think about them? And what we see here are four contemplations that should inform our minds and influence our hearts towards a deeper love for God as we understand his greatness and our role in his creation. As we look at these four contemplations, the first one is to be found in the opening verse, verse 1, and then in the closing verse, verse 9. You may have noticed that uh, verse 9 is, is really a repetition of verse 1. It comes back around f- full circle. Uh, and uh, you can imagine with me, as, uh, this is a psalm of David, It was written for corporate worship. How do I know that? Because he says, Oh, Lord, our Lord. He doesn't just use a first-person singular. He doesn't say, My Lord. He says, Our Lord. This was intended to be sung together in worship. Uh, And that's where that little phrase in the title says, to the choir master, according to the Gittith. And we don't necessarily know what exactly that means. It could refer to a a musical instrument or it could refer to a a melody that was familiar in David's time. Where it says, hey, use these words and this melody uh, and then we'll we'll sing along together. That is possible. But other than those little details of according to the Gittith and a psalm of David, we're not given any additional background uh, to this psalm. Uh, we're not given any more details as to what uh, we are supposed to understand the setting of it. But we see and know that it is intended for worship. And in those, that first line, it says, O Lord, our Lord. You'll notice that that first Lord is in all capital letters. I mean, it is uh, in the Hebrew, it is the divine name, Yahweh. Uh, and the second Lord is the Hebrew word Adonai. And so it's really saying, O Lord, our Master, O Yahweh, our Lord. Uh, And the second two words intensify the first two words. That is the the intention. Yahweh, you are the one who rules over us. That is what is being communicated and how this psalm begins. And then David continues. He says, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And these are all encompassing statements that are intended to exalt the greatness of God, to show how magnificent his name is. It fills the earth and his glory has been established and it is greater than the heavens. That's what we see, that this first contemplation of David is that the glory and majesty of God exceed his creation and his name and his glory are intimately connected. His name and his glory are greater than the heavens and the earth that point to him. And as we see here, these words really echo, are going to be echoed in Isaiah 6 3, words that we're very familiar with. In Isaiah's vision in, in chapter 6, uh, he sees uh, the throne room of God, and he sees these angelic beings, the seraphim. And as they're there before the throne of God, what are they saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And as I mentioned, verse 9 is going to echo this truth again, what's known as an inclusio, a repetition at the beginning and the end. It kind of wraps up the entire psalm and and gives us the main focus of worship and praise concerning the majesty of Yahweh, our master. And have you ever thought about the purpose of the, the wrapping on the food that you get at the grocery store? Uh, that, that wrapping is intended and designed to communicate something about the food that is inside and to communicate something about uh, the manufacturer or the producer of that food. You have, take a bag of Doritos, right? They're bright and flashy, uh, highly processed, uh, and they want to get your attention, right? They're either bright red or blue for Cool Ranch. Uh, and uh, it's intended to communicate what's inside. But then also think of... Uh, Home-style, old-fashioned chocolate chip cookies. How are those going to be packaged? Those aren't going to be flashy because flashy packaging doesn't match with the idea of home-style cookies. Homemade cookies, what do you think of? You think of maybe a brown paper bag that would communicate, Hey, Grandma just baked these, and now she's going to send you home with them. Right? Right? That, that wrapping, that packaging, communicates something about how you are to understand what is in the packaging. And that's what we see here in this psalm. That the wrapping to this psalm is seeking to convince us to delight in the majesty and glory of God. It is inviting us to worship God. That is the, the purpose of this wrapping. That is what is intended to get our attention as we read through it. Again, it is, it is to be sung. It is to be thought about and contemplated, intended for corporate worship, to draw our hearts and our minds away from the everyday and upward towards heaven and the one who created the heaven. That is what is intended when we say that when we think about God, that is what it should steal within us, an awe and a reverence concerning the greatness and the majesty of God. And that's, I guess I'm finding in my own life, and you can probably identify with me on this, that's getting more and more difficult to do, is it not? To define time and undistracted time, times of of silence uh, where you can think about, uh, gaze upward without all of the, the busyness of the day disturbing you, where you can just think deeply about God. I'm not saying make time to to go read your Bible or time to pray. I'm I'm sure you you do that. We always encourage that. But when was the last time that you just specifically set aside time and said, I'm not going to do anything? I know that's that's a discipline, right? My my brain naturally, when I stop doing something, I'm like, okay, what what should I do now? Uh, I just naturally try and move to the next thing. But it is appropriate for us at times just to sit and think, to sit and do nothing. But oftentimes it's more easy to busy ourselves. Our our world and our culture loves to be distracted now because when you're constantly distracted, what are you not doing? You're never going to think about the one who's given you life. You're never going to have to think about answering to him. You're never going to think about your smallness and his greatness. But what we see is that this psalm is intending to draw our hearts and our minds and our attention away from our distracted lives to an undistracted focus upon the Lord. And that is what we need to begin to to schedule, to make time for, to fight for in our hearts and in our lives. I know it's far more entertaining to watch something on YouTube or Netflix, but it's far more rewarding to sit in undistracted contemplation of the glory of god that is what david wants to challenge us to that is his own contemplation that the majesty of god exceeds his creation and from there david moves on to a second contemplation that's seen in verse two and this contemplation you could say is that the methods of god utilize the weak look with me at that second verse it says out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger, so David moves from from contemplating the, the vastness of god 's glory demonstrated in his creation, to thinking about how does God demonstrate his glory? What, what is the method that God uses to bring glory to his name? And what this verse informs us is that the method God uses to make his name majestic in all the earth is to use the weak. To establish his strength, to silence his opponents. God uses those who are infants and babies. And uh, the the Hebrew wording here is a little bit difficult to understand. That idea of establishing his strength is more literally the idea of constructing fortifications. Like, huh? Huh? That God uses little infants and babies to construct fortifications? Doesn't that break child labor laws? Uh, you know, what is he doing? Well, the, the, there's a, a Greek translation of the Old Testament known as the, the Septuagint. Uh, and the Septuagint translates that phrase a little bit differently. I think it gives us a little bit of insight. Now, The Septuagint translates uh, constructing fortifications or establishing his strength as you have prepared praise. That is the idea that God has prepared praise beforehand in the mouths of those who are weak and innocent. The same thought is echoed in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 27 to 29. It says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That is the, the method of God to use the weak, because when God uses the weak, who gets the glory? Not us, but God. And the perfect example of this verse is seen in Matthew 21. will not you turn there with me? If this verse seems a little bit familiar to you, it's probably because you have read it, quoted by Jesus here in Matthew 21. Look with me, beginning in verse 12. It says, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Now, this is the second time Jesus is cleansing the temple. In our study of the Gospel of John, we saw the first time at the beginning of Christ's ministry where he entered into the temple and and chased them out. And this is the second occasion. But let's continue reading. It says, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David... They were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. What we see in this situation is that Jesus has cleansed the temple, chased away those who were buying and selling and trading. And then the young children, what are they doing? They're crying out to Jesus, worshiping him, calling him the Messiah. Hosanna means save now. And the Jewish leaders look at Jesus and says, hey, you've got you to gotta stop this. You've got to keep them from saying that you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, no, no. Haven't you read? Haven't you heard in the scriptures that God has prepared praise ahead of time? And he's done it through the mouths of nursing infants and children. And Jesus points to this passage, and it's a rebuke to the priests and to the scribes. It's a rebuke, first and foremost, because, says, hey, you should know this. Don't you know that this is the method of God, that he uses the weak to bring glory to his name? But secondly, it's an accusation against those who are opposing him, because this verse shows that they are the enemies of God. They are the ones who are opposing him. They are the ones who are seeking to avenge themselves. Back in that Psalm 8, verse 2, it says the foes, the enemies, the avengers. Those are the Jewish leaders who are opposing Christ. And Christ says, no, God is using them to bring glory to his name. God is using them to praise Jesus because the Jewish leaders were unwilling to praise him. And so when we contemplate the methods that God uses to bring himself glory, to make his name majestic on the earth, we see that God doesn't use the strong and the mighty and the powerful. What does he use? He uses the weak. He uses those who are humble. And as we desire to be used by him, it should inform what we, how we go about that. We don't seek to exalt ourselves, but we seek to humble ourselves. We seek to, to be as children, innocent, humble, exalting Christ. And as we embrace that position of a servant of Christ, it's amazing what happens. I don't mean that, hey, as you, as you humble yourself, God will guarantee that he will exalt you to a prominent place of position or he'll give you that, that raise or he'll give you that promotion. That's not what the emphasis here. The emphasis here is how does God bring glory to his name? He does it through humble servants. And he uses humble servants to transform lives, marriages, families, and ultimately churches. And then the church will reach and impact society. But God uses those who are low. Isaiah 57, 15 says this, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, Who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. If we desire to be used of God, we have no need to exalt ourselves. He's not looking for exalted ones, He's looking for humble ones. That is what God is calling us to if we want to be used by him. And that is his method to make his name majestic in all the earth. To use the weak, to use children, to sing his praise. That's the second contemplation of David. And that's something for all of us to contemplate. That the methods of God are to use and utilize the weak. And the third contemplation that we see here in this passage is in... Verses 3 and 4, we can say that David's contemplation is the creation of God shrinks man's significance. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. Because when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? This is where we see David begin to look skyward. He's contemplated the the majesty of God and the methods of God, but now as he looks upwards at the heavens, realizing their enormity, and he would have had plenty of time to look heavenward each night when he was a a young shepherd boy. There's no city lights out in the wilderness, so he would see all of these stars in the sky. And what would have been visible to David... At that point in time, there's about 2,500 stars that are visible to the human eye uh, on a given night. Uh, But what we know now is that there are, even though we can only see 2,500 stars, there are estimated to be one septillion stars in the universe, which is a trillion trillions, or one with 24 zeros after it. Quite a few. So, so David's just looking up and he's seeing 2,500 stars. But now we, we know that there are one septillion stars. Uh, so that should just magnify our understanding of how small we are. David looks at all of those stars and says, Wow, who am I? What is this? And David looks at the moon and the stars and reflects that each one of them was placed right where it was by God. It's exactly where God wanted it is David's reflection. And he kind of echoes what is spoken of a little bit later in the Psalms, Psalm 19.1. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And in light of this, this massive expanse of space that David is looking up at, he realizes that man is but a, a mere speck of nothing. And, and he and he he asks these two questions in verse 4. All right, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? God, how can you make all of this and then care about me and have care and concern for me? How can you be mindful of me as an individual when you've created this, this enormous universe with a septillion number of stars as david looks at the vast number of stars in the sky he just feels smaller and smaller as a human being and that's that's the normal human experience when we come and encounter majesty is it not when you when you go to the grand canyon uh, and you see the largeness of it uh, how, how do you just naturally feel you feel smaller and smaller, but here's a question: Why do you not feel that way when you look at a picture of the Grand Canyon? Because you're like, well, I'm bigger than this picture, so, so that's not that—that's not that big of a deal. But when you stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon, when you go to some of these national parks, remember my first time going to Yosemite. We hadn't quite made it to the park yet, and I'm I'm all excited and uh, keep pulling over on the on the route into this the Yosemite Valley. And my wife, who's been there before, she's like, "Look, just just wait. We're we're going to get there, and it's going to be more amazing than this." And I remember going to the park, and and one of the first things I saw was El Capitan, which was uh, this this 3,000 foot granite formation from the bottom of the valley upwards 3,000 feet, and you can stand at the bottom. And I remember gazing at it and just feeling like an ant. That is what we what we feel when we understand the greatness and the majesty of God's creation. But all that is just intended just to point us where to the one who has created those things. Viewing the majestic always puts man in his proper place and causes us to feel a little less significant. And as David. Asks these questions in verse 4. He says, what is man? What he's really saying is not what is man, but what a God. Look at what God has created. Look at what he has made. But then also look at God's character as the one who can make something so big, still cares for someone so small and who feels so insignificant. That is what David contemplates and reflects on. In these verses, what is man that you are mindful of him? What is man that you are intentional towards him? And the son of man that you care for him. And how reassuring is that? That even the God who made everything still cares for us. Who in the grand scheme of things are but made of dust. Who will transition from this life to the next but God knows and cares for each and every one of us. And these things that that David is contemplating in creation, they all point to the to the existence of God. And these things that are in creation and visible to every single person who's ever lived, they are known as general revelation. And, and general revelation, uh, the vastness of the heavens, the regularity of uh, the earth's rotation around the sun, the beauty and majesty of mountains and rivers and lakes and plains, they all serve to declare the existence of a creator. And they remove our excuse. That's what Romans 1 says. That you, No one will be able to, to stand before God and say, I didn't know that you existed, because he's just going to point to the earth. And you're like, really? You didn't know I existed when all of this came into being? All of this functions So well, not by random chance, but by organized systems and structures. Nobody is going to be without excuse because general revelation gives us just enough information to condemn us. That's what general revelation does. Takes away whatever excuse we have. And that's where we need to understand our desperate need for what's called special revelation our desperate need for the Word of God. Why? Because the Word of God doesn't just say, hey, you're condemned. (laughs) The Word of God gives us hope. The Word of God leads us to know our place in the great expanse of the universe. Because without special revelation, we just come to the conclusion we are small and insignificant and what's the point of life? That's where we need the Bible. We need the Word of God because it shows us who we are in God's Creation, And that's the fourth and final of David's contemplations in this psalm. It's seen in verses 5 through 8. We can say that this contemplation is that the word of God shows man's position. Look with me at those verses. It says, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. See, after reflecting upon God's creation and man's shrinking significance, David begins to... To turn his mind to the scriptures. To remember that while man feels small and insignificant, God has given us a significant position in his creation. Verse 5 shows that honor was given to humanity when we were created by God. We were slightly less than the heavenly beings. The idea of the the angels, although uh, the Hebrew word there uh, is literally the word for God. Saying hey, you've made us a little bit lower than than God, a little bit lower than again the Septuagint translates it as the an, the angels. You've made man a little bit lower than angels, but higher than the rest of creation. We've been crowned with glory and honor, and we are the pinnacle of God's creation. And we see this what what David is is echoing as he he says this truth at, in verse 5 and then at the beginning of verse 6. Then he points to all of the specifics in verses 7 and 8. What has God given us dominion over? Well, all of the, the creatures on land, all of the creatures in the air, and all the creatures in the sea. And what he's doing, he's reflecting back to Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. God's first words to man. says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image, in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. This is what God said. And God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What we see in Scripture is that we have been given a prominent place. We have been placed in God's creation to represent Him. We are created in His image to rule and reign over His creation. He gives us purpose and meaning to life. A reason for our existence and responsibility and value. But think about how this compares with... That scientism worldview that's presented in that Cosmos series I mentioned earlier. According to that worldview, humanity is small and insignificant. We are an accident in the cosmos. We are evolved bacteria without purpose or meaning in life. There's a play by a man named Samuel Beckett. It's called Breath. It's a very unique play. It's all of 35 seconds long. And it has no human actors. And the play begins with a pile of garbage sitting on the stage. And the garbage is lit by a dim light that that gradually gets a little bit brighter and then it grows dimmer. And no words are spoken in the play. There's only the sound of a recorded cry at the beginning, followed by an inhaled breath, an exhaled breath, And then another cry. And the message of that 35 second play is very clear, very simple. What is humanity? We're trash. We're garbage. With no meaning for our existence. But the scriptures say so much more. Man is not trash. Man is royal. That is what the scriptures say about humanity. We're not a cosmic accident floating through our solar system. We have been given a purpose. We are created in the image of God, so every single human being has value. That is David's contemplation. That is his meditation. He thinks back to the first words to Adam in Genesis. And what's amazing is that the the author of Hebrews and he looks back to this psalm and he says, hey, those, those words that were spoken about the, the first Adam also apply to the second Adam. Why don't you guys turn with me to, to Hebrews chapter 2 see what the author of Hebrews has to say about this psalm. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning of verse 5. Speaking of the, the greatness of Christ, and the, the author of Hebrews is, is marching along, and he's just said that Christ is greater than the angels. And he says this, in Hebrews 2, verse 5, it says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. It says, What is man that you are mindful of him? crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That's what we see what, as we think about the, this connection between Psalm 8 and Hebrews 2. We realize that, that man has not yet filled this commission by God. Are we ruling and reigning as God has ordained for us to do so? No. But the author of Hebrews so says, hey, the first Adam failed at that, but guess who has succeeded at that? Christ, the second Adam, the one who for a little while was made lower than the angels, who lived a perfect life, who died a sacrificial death, who raised from the grave on the third day. He is ruling and reigning. All things have been subjected under his feet. Jesus, who is now crowned with glory and honor and who sits at the right hand of God the Father, He has fulfilled this passage in Psalms theologically and we can rest assured that he will one day fulfill it historically. And when he fulfills this Psalm, when Jesus rules and reigns on the earth, guess who will be with him? All those who have trusted in his name. Revelation 5 verse 10 says, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. That's speaking of us. And they shall reign on the earth. All who have looked to Jesus in faith, understanding our own sinfulness, understanding our rebellion against this Creator who has given us everything, understanding our small insignificance, and yet our insignificance has developed into a significant rebellion. That we have rebelled against the One who has given us life, and that act of rebellion is worthy of judgment. So we are called now to turn in Christ, to look to him in faith, trusting not in ourselves, but in his life, death and resurrection. And if we believe, if we trust in Christ, we get to rule and reign as it is promised that we would do so with Christ in the millennial kingdom and for eternity. So we are called to find hope in these words, knowing that although we feel, we feel small in the grand scheme of the universe, God has a plan and a place for humanity. He is mindful and caring towards each of us, and He has given us dominion under the Lordship of Christ, and we are called to look forward to the day when we will rule and reign with Christ on the earth. Amen? That gives us hope that's quite a set of contemplations isn't it thinking about the the majesty of god the methods that god uses to to glorify his name seeing our own significance shrink as as the, the greatness and the glory of god is seen and beheld by us and then ultimately that we have a position in this vast universe we have meaning we have hope and i would say If we have meaning and we have hope, we have something that the world around us doesn't have. We have something that the world around us desperately needs. We have a message to carry forth. We are called to be ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is what we have to understand. That the world around us, there are many who are hurting and despairing because... They view life, maybe not, they wouldn't articulate it in the same way as that play I described. But their worldview ultimately says that, that. Their worldview proclaims that life has no meaning. That they are cosmic evolved bacteria floating through the universe. And we must carry the gospel forth to them. we must be mindful of them, even as the Lord is mindful towards us. And we must keep in mind that as believers, even though we may feel small and insignificant, and it's good to feel that way, we use truth, we use Genesis 1, we use Psalm 8 to see and understand that God has a role and a position for us in this life. But the overall message of this psalm is again seen and understood in verses 1 and what is repeated in verse 9 of Yahweh our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The main point of this psalm is to see the greatness and the glory of God. So I pray that would go with you today. And there's a, once was a, a monarch of France, Louis XIV. He he ascended the, the throne of France when he was four years old. And then he ruled for the next 72 years, making him the, the longest reigning monarch in modern European history but he was uh, intoxicated with his own power this self-consumed emperor he called himself the great monarch and he once declared I am the state but in 1715 King Louis the 14th like all other rulers in human history passed away into eternity and his funeral just as he had prescribed was nothing short of spectacular as the great cathedral was packed with mourners to pay final tribute to their king in his solid gold coffin. And to dramatize the deceased ruler's greatness, there was a solitary candle which was burned above his jewel-laden casket. And thousands waited in hushed silence, gazing at the solitary flame. At the appointed time, the funeral service began, and Bishop Massillon, who presided over the, the state funeral, stood to address the mourners, which included the assembled clergy of France, and when the bishop rose, he did something that stunned the entire nation. He got up to the pulpit and he bent down and he extinguished that lone candle, which represented the greatness of Louis Fourteenth. And everybody gasped. And there was a voice out of the darkness that said, only God is great. That is the message of this psalm. That is what the the psalmist is intending to communicate to us. What is man? What is the son of man? Before a holy and righteous and infinite and omnipotent God. But may we understand that. And may it turn our hearts and minds to praise our Creator. And may we thank him for the place that he has given us in his creation. Amen. Let's pray. Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Your glory is greater than the heavens. Your glory exceeds Everything that you have made. And Lord, as we see the splendor and the majesty of your creation, we cannot but help to feel small. We cannot help but realize what we are before you. And Lord, that is a a scary and a sobering thought to see and understand. But Lord, you have also given us hope. That is not the only message that you have given to man. But Lord, you have given to us in your word how we can be reconciled to you. How we can fulfill the purpose that you have given to us when you created us in your own image. And, Lord, for that purpose, we praise you and thank you. Because how, how sad, how depressing it would be to only be evolved bacteria floating through space. Lord, we thank you for creating us in your image, for calling us to serve a purpose, for giving us dominion and honor and glory. But Lord, we also acknowledge that we have not carried out that responsibility as we should. But your son has. And for that, again, we thank you and praise you for your son, Jesus Christ. Who paid for our sins on the cross. Who rose from the grave and is now seated at your right hand. Awaiting the day when you will subject all of creation under his feet. And Lord, we long for that day. We long for you to send your son Jesus to return to establish his kingdom on the earth. We long to be called to him and then to rule and reign with him over your creation as you have intended for us to do. But Lord, until that time, Lord, may we be faithful to carry forth a message of hope to a world that does not have hope. May we do that graciously. May we do that honestly. May we do that by pointing them. To your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, with a majestic name, and in whose name we pray. Amen.